0: Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for your grace and the message that has come to us through the Apostle Paul in this letter as we have looked at it these many weeks. We ask that you would continue to enlighten us by your grace through the work of your Spirit, through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and even with the weakness of the presentation of this word, that you would make it shine out to us more and more, that we may live in the life of Christ in light of the life of the Apostle Paul and his coming to the Galatians and his conflict here with the Judaizers. We may see all such conflicts in light of the eschatological resolution in the Son of God and his coming and appearance in the future age. We ask that you would build us up today, As we finish this epistle, to build us up in his grace, looking forward to his coming again. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are looking at the last chapter of uh, Galatians, and uh, this is uh, to be our last study in the book. And so I ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 6. Now, first of all, I'd like to give you a, a brief review of chapter 5, verses 13 to 26, and just remind you that in that section we found in 5.13 that Paul began with liberty. And what he did is he is, he is talking about the liberty with which Christ has liberated, liberated us, especially the fullness of the liberation that has now come in greater fullness through the death and resurrection of His Son. And thus that liberty, in relative contrast even to the law and the slavery that was under the law. Now He has brought us the fullness of liberty. And with that fullness of liberty, He has brought us the fullness of the law in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, as liberty precedes what he is to say about the law of love brought to its fullness in the one who embodied that love in his life, death, and resurrection. And so, in effect, we have even that love contrasted to boasting implicitly, and we'll see more in this chapter that to be the case, and even in relative contrast to the period of the law in which there was some degree of boasting of free man over slave, male above female, etc. And Jew above Gentile, as this book talks about. So now, the fullness of the love command, the fullness of the law, embodied in its fullness in the age of the Spirit, and the fullness of the coming of the age to the Spirit, now semi-realized in Christ, So that in living out of love, in living out of the law of God, we are also living out of the life of the Spirit. Not just simply as the Spirit dwelling within us and individually moving us to righteousness, that is true, but also as the Spirit being that arena in which we dwell. And because that's the objective arena in which we dwell, the Spirit becomes a guide to us becomes the rule by which we walk. So as opposed to the flesh, all sins of the flesh then result from human beings making this world an end in itself, making this world their idol. So, of course, hatred comes from making this world an idol and being denied things in the world and hating those who deny them to you and hating God, who in fact will consummate this world and destroy it. Whereas love arises from recognizing the fullness that has occurred in Jesus Christ, the great love of Christ toward his people, from eternity, and now living by faith in that love, out of that liberty, having the fullness of the end of the ages fill your heart, you may love others. And so it is with joy, the joy of the coming of the kingdom of God, in contrast to the sorrow of which the unbeliever ultimately has sorrow and no hope. And so in this community, he's looking at this working itself out in the life of the church. And the life of the church, those, to the degree that we live by that, you see, we do not live in harmony, disharmony, and discord. We live in harmony with one another. The Judaizers bringing us back to the older era, are focusing us on the flesh, where there's competition, competing with one another for the things of the world, where we ultimately we'd be biting and devouring one another. And insofar as they are leading the church backward in the history of redemption, they are leading the church backward to the flesh, per se. And therefore, their work in the church is at odds, with the love and harmony that's in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, I'd like to make another suggestion about this chapter, chapter 5. It may be that Paul is actually reflecting back on chapter 2 in the narrative. Because I've given you in your handout there, you can see a comparison, a possible comparison that might exist between Galatians 5 verses 2 to 12, notice that focuses on circumcision, and then Galatians 2, 1 to 10, which is a narrative in which Paul is engaged in a conflict over circumcision. And then after 5, 2 to 12, you have 5, 13 to 26, where Paul, as we've just seen, is talking about loving one another and living out of the life of the Spirit. Whereas we saw in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 14, that narrative, Peter was not acting in step with the truth of the gospel. And what did that bring? That brought disharmony and discord in the life of the church. And then, of course, it's interesting, he follows that with a discussion about the gospel in which he brings up his own autobiography. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And in this chapter, chapter 6, we will have him going about, giving about his narrative biography as well. So, he may be wanting us to see this, you see, in the light of the history of redemption as manifest in the conflict in the churches. Well, The next thing in your outline you put to is bearing the fruits of the Spirit and bearing one another's burdens in Christ. And you'll see how he begins this chapter, chapter 6. Brethren, if any man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. Now, in what we've just read, we're going to have some key words that repeat themselves. So maybe you can look for those for a moment. But I'm going to suggest to you, in light of what we've seen in the life of the Spirit, that this section actually expands upon the fruits of the spirit in the life of the church okay so that for instance in verse 1 here you see that you are to do such a thing restoring a brother in a spirit of gentleness and it is the same greek word that we find when gentleness is a fruit of the spirit in 523 and it may be that paul is reflecting upon the fruit of the Spirit is self-control in six four to six. And patience, perhaps, in six two. Patience in affliction. Certainly, generosity seems to be highlighted in verses nine to ten, which we haven't read, to do good to all. Well, There's also another possible connection with the previous section. You who are caught, uh, those who are caught in a trespass, and there is some thought that this trespass language may allude to a misstep and therefore may bring us back to the step with the Spirit, although this is a little bit perhaps of a stretch. The verb is, is quite different. But certainly it is a person who is sinning, Against the life of the Spirit. Right? Because he has just given the life of the Spirit as the standard for the church. So those who are caught in a trespass have trespassed against the Spirit. Against the life that's come in Christ. And think about this. In the New Testament, that is a basis for repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see? It is... The coming of the kingdom, the fullness of the coming of the kingdom, insofar as God has brought the kingdom, that is the standard by which you are now judged. And if you do not live out of it, you have transgressed against it. And so, in the Gospels, repent in light of the kingdom. Well, what about this language of those who are spiritual? Spiritual. Is this a special group of people here? I see Ben shaking his head. Why not, Ben?
1: Good,
0: good. Okay, so so especially in light of what he said already, he's got this language of the spirit. You see, and it seems that those who are walking in step with the spirit, at least, right? Now, certainly, Paul does have some sense of maturity in Christ, and he talks about it in 1 Corinthians, okay? Those who are mature. Um, and certainly, this would be understanding that. It's not those who are also transgressing in the Spirit in this regard, we were to correct another brother, but those who are walking according to the fruit that the brother has transgressed. And... Again, in a spirit of meekness or gentleness. This is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, you're living out of the liberty that you have in Christ Jesus. The one who is transgressing is not living out of that liberty. And the one, insofar as a person is conformed to that liberty, they are then rebuking. So, if they're living out of the liberty that's in Christ Jesus, how is that liberty attained? By their own works? No, by grace, right? So it is the recognition of this brother that he has what he has in the spirit by grace, right? And therefore to give it in a spirit of gentleness, watching himself, lest he also be tempted, because he knows the frailty of himself as well. And so he gives to this brother or sister in the grace of God, correcting them. And so, do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, he said in 5.13. And so here, we have the person is to watch out lest they be tempted, and take that as an opportunity for the flesh as well. Well, now he has an interesting language in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Now, it may be that what he's doing is he's ta- talking this back up to verse 1, where you're to bear the burdens of the brother insofar as they have sinned, and you're making correction, you're bearing their burden, right? You're not redeeming them for their sin. Christ is the ultimate redeemer, but in Christ you are bearing them, their burden. What, what is, you see this word bear one another's burdens. We have that a little bit later. Anybody want to see see a verse where you see that? Very fine, very good. Each one will bear his own load. Now, in the one case, it's bear a burden, and the other case is bear a load. They are two different Greek words, though they are similar in many respects. And some people have asked the question, well, then, if this one says bear one another's burdens, you know, uh, and then the other one says each one bears his own load, uh does that not seem contradictory? As if on the one hand you're supposed to bear each other's burdens now no you only bear your own load. I don't think so. I think as you look and I know it isn't contradictory because it's the word of God but how can we see this resolution here? All right? Look at the way he's using the language of bearing one another's burdens and the use of bear even later in this pass it in this in this chapter. See in verse seventeen. What does he say there? From now on, let no one cause trouble for me,
1: for I bear on my body the brand marks of
0: Jesus. Bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus. Okay? Bearing the brand marks of Christ. So, if, and I've already implied, if, you see, you are bearing a burden, are you ultimately bearing that burden? When you suffer in Jesus Christ, are you actually suffering exactly like Christ suffered under the wrath of God here? Bearing a burden? No, you are not. You are bearing another's burden in the light of the liberty that has been given you in the resurrection of Christ, right? Is that not implied? Bear one another's burdens in light of the liberty that is ours in Christ? You're united to Christ's sufferings as Paul was. Now think about this. When you suffer in Christ, you are suffering... Out of the resurrection. Christ suffered first and then was raised from the dead. So he bared a heavy load of a burden of curse and wrath. But since he's already done that for you, when you are in union with his sufferings, is it you simply going back here? Bearing that heavy burden? In union with your Savior? No. It is in light of him already having borne the burden, already having been raised from the dead, already been liberated from the curse, you already being liberated from the curse. And therefore, you bear that burden in light of the overwhelming abundance of liberty you have in him. Insofar as you are denied anything in bearing this burden you possess by way of compensation in heavenly riches everything that surpasses this thing on earth that you are denied. So if you are denied earthly riches, you are compensated with heavenly rewards. If you are abused, as some find themselves abused when they go to rebuke a brother for sin, when you are abused... You see, you receive compensation in the pleasure that God has in you and Jesus Christ. Remember, hasn't this book talked about the contrast between seeking to please men and pleasing Christ and the pleasure that comes of Christ and his people? So you are always compensated overly and abundantly by heavenly riches in Christ by everything you are denied. You see, this is not a rigorous type of burden my burden is light, right? Jesus says, Matthew 11:30, okay? Burden is light because of the resurrection light, because I've borne that burden for you. This is the way you're to see your whole Christian life as a life out of resurrection. You see? And that everything you are called to by the Spirit is first of all by faith in what he's done. Faith always precedes works. Faith even precedes love. And therefore, possessing in him the greatest of abundance. And therefore, giving up yourself for the sake of your brother or sister. And doing good to all men. And that, in effect, I think, is critical for understanding what he says in this whole section. And thus he says, bear one another one's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. Doesn't that bring us back to the law of love? 513? That love grounded in liberty? See? And that's now the law of Christ, in which Christ embodies the fullness of the law. Of course, Christ obeying the law in his suffering death, and having it manifest in fullness in his resurrection. Now we're living out of his resurrection life in union with his sufferings. We are fulfilling the law of Christ. So it is a life in which Paul wants us to see ourselves deeply united with Christ. The language of mimesis is sometimes used by people to describe that life living in the other, you see. And so it is here. And fulfilled. Law of Christ. That is, the end of the ages has come upon you. The fulfillment of all that has come before is manifest in you in Christ Jesus. Well, it is interesting when you think about this. You think about Christ who bore our sins, and he will constantly come back to this, you see. He, like the scapegoat, took away our sins. Or Isaiah 53, you see, he bore our sins and carried our sorrows. And so, Paul is thinking, I'm going to suggest to you, Paul is thinking here, even in relative contrast to the older administration, Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ.
1: Well,
0: you see, when he bears, in Isaiah 53, when he bears the curse of his people, he's bearing it in the fullness of the time, taking away that curse, you see, bearing that curse so that they will not be in exile forevermore. He is taking that curse away from his people, even to the degree that it was on the Old Covenant people of God. The Son of God bears it. and As we've seen as a result, there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile, slave or free in in the New Covenant, is there? In the Old, see, in the Old, there is some degree of difference. And it's partially because of the curse upon the land that cursed inheritance, relatively speaking, cursed. Okay, And so here, I think that what you have is, to summarize this for you, is what you have is Christ, you see, there is some degree in which some serve others more in this inheritance than others. In some sense, the slave bears the burden of the free man as he works for the free man. And now that Christ has borne that burden and raised us all into glory in that inheritance above in the Spirit, there is no one bearing the burden of another in that sense. In the sense that one is bearing the burden of another to lighten the other's load in the sense that they, that the other whose load is lightened is above the one who is bearing the burden. This is a bearing of one another's burdens mutually. This is not one person bearing the load of another to lighten that person's load and let them be under a burden. and so i'm going to suggest to you that this language of bearing a burden is partially connected to slavery okay in fact you find that genesis 49:15 for instance let's take a brief look at that you'll see a text which makes a connection Somebody want to read that for us?
1: When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor.
0: Okay. This just illustrates that one of those who bear burdens is a slave. It's not to say that everyone who bears a burden is a slave in the same sense. Okay, but You know, that was one of the jobs of a slave, is to bear burdens. Now, of course, we do have others in the law who are bearing burdens, as indeed Moses bears the burden of the people as the servant of God in Numbers 1-17. But you also have the same language used in Matthew to describe the working man. Okay? In Matthew 20, verse 12, where the working man bears the burden of the day. So, what I'm suggesting to you uh, is that the law, the law as it revealed love, did encourage the bearing bearing of burdens. And I mentioned to you uh, Numbers 11, 11, and 17 where you have others bearing the burdens of Moses. Remember when Moses was bearing a great burden upon his shoulder, and Jethro suggested that he have others bear burdens with him. So he has others bear burdens with him. And so the love command calls for that in the Old Covenant. What I'm suggesting to you is that there is a certain degree to which that has not come to its fullness, And that the slave, insofar as he bears the burden of the free man in the inheritance, does not have the full equality with the free man. But now that Christ has borne that burden, Christ has borne the burden of the law and been raised from the dead, all are equal in that respect. If I'm right about this, that can explain how Paul means to bring these things together. Bear one another's burdens and bear your own load. Because you see, he is not suggesting that you bear the burden of someone else so as to lighten their load in a way that they're just free from you and you're always under their burden. You see, he is not suggesting that someone in the church be liberated for instance of work so that you are burdened by taking care of them. That would be to come back under the law where there is to some degree a slave serving a free man. So everyone has to bear his own load. Everyone must bear his own load. If, If Someone is not bearing their own load, then you and the community, at least in so far as he's talking about financial matters, and that's perhaps a part of what's going on here, then you and the community are not to take upon yourselves that burden of theirs. So everyone must bear his own load. If a man does not work, he does not eat. Now, clearly, Paul is talking about more than financial matters here. And he's talking about the bearing of all burdens with one another in Christ Jesus. But even this comes into the liberty that's in Christ Jesus. This is not seeking for someone to be constantly abused in the church. You are not constantly to be abused bearing the burden of another who is constantly abusing you, this is a person who is taking a misstep, who is corrected, who comes into union and fellowship. This is not a person who is practicing the deeds of the flesh continuously. That person who is practicing the deeds of the flesh continuously in this epistle, in chapter 5, is a person who will come under the judgment of God. And so we are talking about a person who is generally living out of the Spirit, but who has taken a fall. Then you can take some abuse for the sake of restoring such a brother. But this is not for you to become a slave of another person. You have been liberated in Christ. Anything you want to comment on there or say something about... Okay. Well, notice that he has this statement in the middle there that seems, uh, well, there's two statements verses 3 and verses 4. If any man thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Let each examine his own work, and then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Obviously, here we have the person who thinks himself something when he's nothing. Here's a person boasting, right? And so it may be the person who thinks himself something, you see, is unwilling to act in meekness and gentleness toward a brother because he stands out as unique and different. But he is deceiving himself, you see. He's deceiving himself. And so one is to examine his own work and truly live out of truth. And then he will have a right to boast... Not above another, you see. Here, obviously, a boasting that's not above another, which is what is going on in Judaizing, right? They want to seek to boast one above another. But it's a boasting in regard to himself. And here, I can only say, what boasting does any Christian have except the rest of the boasting that's in this chapter? What does Paul talk about when he says boasting? Verse 14, But may it be that I should never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So clearly this is a self-assessment grounded in Christ, grounded in the liberty that is in Him. Right? Right? So this is a self-assessment that looks to one's identity with the life of the Spirit and the liberty that has come in Christ. And that liberty that's come in Christ is purely by grace, is it not? And it is purely grounded, therefore, in the death and resurrection of Christ. So is this not a boasting in the Lord? Well, in the next section, Paul talks, which is probably verses 6 to 10, Paul talks about reaping and sowing. And he says, uh, somebody want to read verse 6 for us? 6, 6.
1: And
0: let, the, and let the one who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Okay. The one who taught the word share with him all good things. There is a reciprocity of self-sacrifice here, you see, bearing one another's burdens. And this reciprocity is that the teacher has taught, and you are to share all good things with him who teaches. And so he seems to be expressing life of the Spirit. Is he also perhaps expressing a concern that as the Judaizers come in, true teachers of the truth of the gospel are being neglected? Perhaps. But here, he speaks partially of material well-being. And he talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 10 to 11 in the language of reaping and sowing, which is the next thing that he's going to say here. We want to return to that, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 10 through 11. We want to read that for us.
1: Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake, as it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it not, is it too much, if we should reap material things from you?
0: Okay. So notice he he's using this language of sowing and reaping to describe the sowing. You see, if we've sowed spiritual things among you, should we not reap material things? Now, this is Paul talking about sowing and reaping in his ministry. And then he's going to see, but here he's talked about those who actually hear the word receiving in reciprocal. There may, there may be a sense, I'm going to suggest, in which it's primarily when he talks next about sowing and reaping, I think he's got something broader in mind than just financial matters, but part of it is a financial issue. But then behind the background, therefore, maybe all forms of sowing and reaping may include his own, and perhaps even that of Christ himself. So, looking back at our verse, let's take a look at what Paul says here. And notice we have a contrast here in verses, uh, in verse eight, uh, verses seven through eight. First, of course, in verse seven, he says, "Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap." Okay, that's a general statement. And uh, so then, he has, "He who sows to his own flesh shall from his flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall reap eternal life." And I'd like you to look on the second page of your other handout. You have a handout that says Patterns. Patterns in Galatians 6, 6 to 10. This is the second page. Look at the way he has structured this. And I've laid it out for you as the words occur in the Greek. He was, for the one who sows, reaps. I think that's a general statement that he's going to flesh out, you see. And then he's got sowing to the flesh, flesh, reap corruption. Sowing to the spirit, spirit, reap eternal life. Do you see how symmetrical that is? Sowing flesh, flesh, below sowing spirit, spirit. Reap corruption, reap eternal life. Very symmetrical in the Greek. And I think what he's doing here is he is making a symmetry, at least in part, to suggest an eschatological conflict. Okay. An eschatological contrast. A contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Remember how in earlier in chapter 5... He talked about the spirit and the flesh being at war with one another. Well, here we have an instance, in effect, of that war taking place, perhaps. See, the one sowing to the flesh reaps corruption, eternal corruption. The one sowing to the spirit reaps corruption eternal life. Gerhardus Voss has a wonderful little description of this in an article called, um, well, I always get the name mixed up, but it's uh, the Eschatological Conception of the Pauline Conception of the Spirit. How's it go, Jim, exactly? Yeah, aspect of the Pauline Conception of the Spirit. Thank you. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but in that, you see, he, he mentions what other commentators say too that the Spirit is looked at as a field, you see, in which you sow. Right? And then you're going to reap. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. If you sow to this other field, the field of the flesh, you're going to reap corruption, eternal destruction. Now, one thing that Voss wonderfully does is he shows how there is a connection between the eternal life that you yield and that which you're sowing unto. You see, you're sowing unto one kind of field, the Spirit, and you're going to yield its reward, which is eternal life, the other, sowing to the flesh, yielding its natural reward. So, if you will, the fruits of the Spirit, we might even say, are anticipations of this eternal life yet to come. You're sowing unto that life. You're sowing unto the life of the Spirit. You're going to reap it. She's sowing unto life of love, peace, joy, which arise from the Spirit, right? We've already said that they arise from grace. You're going to reap eternal life. If you sow to the flesh and its works, you're going to yield what amounts to those eternal destruction. Why? The flesh and its roots and its fruits... I mean, excuse me, the, the flesh and its works... Do they not lead to biting and devouring one another in chapter 5? Yes, they are biting and devouring one another in 5.15. And would you not say that the ones who bite and devour one another are going to destroy one another? So there's a relationship between the nature of the works and the nature of the consequences. So with the spirit, the nature of the works, joy and peace. The nature of the consequences. Love in Christ. Joy and peace in Christ forevermore. So the two are in conflict with one another. Now, I think there is an implicit contrast to the Jewish eschatology here. What does the Jewish eschatology of the Judaizers say? That is their view of the final goal of life and the end of history. The Judaizers not think that by obedience to the law, okay, they don't have this here, obedience to the law, they're going to receive what? Eternal life. It's obedience to the law that's going to bring about this eternal life. Paul is saying no. I'm giving you a different perspective. In fact, what I'm telling you about these Jews is they are actually sowing to the flesh. You remember how I suggested in the last section that there's the works of the flesh, and that might be related to the works of the law here? Well, the Judaizers are sowing the flesh and they will reap corruption. They will not reach eschatological life. And what's Paul saying about his eschatology? Is it based on works righteousness? Is sowing to the Spirit just another form of works righteousness in contrast to the Judaizers' works righteousness? No. Haven't we seen that The life of the Spirit that you possess comes out of the liberty that's yours in Christ. It comes out of being united to His death and His resurrection and trusting in that reality by faith. And that's from that, it's from that reality that flow the gifts, the grace of love peace, joy, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All of these flow from grace. Paul's view of the end of history is when you sow to the Spirit, you're not doing works righteousness to earn eternal life. You're sowing to the Spirit out of the fact you've already been given that life of the Spirit above through Christ's death and resurrection. Yours is based on the already of salvation. That's your hope. That's your glory. It's nothing you do. You see. Nothing you do that is your hope and glory. It is everything that Christ has done. And living out of that life yields its fruit, eternal life. Which ultimately has been won for you in Christ. Now, there is perhaps also implicit here the sowing and the reaping, which is a matter of degrees of reward and punishment. At least we find that in Paul's other language, 2 Corinthians 9.6. So we want to read for that, us for that, that for us. So sparingly will also reap sparingly. <coughs> generously will also reap generously. Okay. There seems to be at least some aspect of degrees of reward. Sowing to the spirit yields a greater. The more you sow to the spirit, the more you yield the reward of life eternal. The greater abundance of gifts in life eternal. And if Paul has that in mind here, then I think the best illustration I've heard from this comes from John Gerstner about, from Jonathan Edwards, which is, how do you imagine that in heaven, if some have more rewards than others, won't one lord it over the other, as if one has a boasting over against the other? And the illustration that Gerstner gives is that from Edwards of cups. No, it will be in heaven like you have a vessel that's just simply larger. And what's it filled with? It's filled with love, right? Love being that eternal gift in heaven. And so if your cup is filled with love, and you got another cup who's a little smaller, and he's filled with love too, and your cups are both overflowing, okay, so you know, no lack in either cup, but if your cup has a greater abundance, are you going to have if anything, more love toward your brother. Not not high-mindedness toward your brother. Okay? But this, in a sense, is the encouragement to live out of the life of the Spirit is to possess the abundance of joy and glory and to possess it even more so. Well, why do you think he then says, Do not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. You see, in due time, do not lose heart because you have the life of the Spirit who fills your heart. And wait for the fact that That if we don't grow weary, in due time we will reap. In due time. How is Paul using that term here in Galatians? Talking about time. Is he not talking about it in eschatological terms again? You see, here, this is the time. When the time had fully come. Here, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law. Time filled up. So also, he's looking about the future eschatological coming in due time. Time arising to that due time with the coming of Christ. See, it's in that hope that we will receive this abundance reward if we do not give up. See, you are assured with the same liberty with which Christ was given you by the resurrection of the dead. Has he come? Has he been raised from the dead? Has he brought the kingdom of God? Yes. Then with that same assurance, you lay hold of the life to come. You say, we will receive. This is a promise of God. We will receive. You will receive this if you do not give up. And look back to Christ, for he's accomplished it for you. This is a reaping and sowing that has its abundance of rewards. And even if there's some reflection on the reaping and sowing in the land in the Old Testament, which did yield the rewards of abundance of life in God and did look ahead to the life of the Spirit, yet even there, that sowing and reaping did not always yield its full reward. Yet now, with the life of the Spirit, this is the case receives the abundance of reward in Christ Jesus. And therefore, Galatians come back to Christ. Don't want to go back under the law and its bondage. And so how does he, in a sense, conclude this? While we have opportunity... While we have time, let us do good to all men, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Knowing this, knowing the time, as he says elsewhere, because the days are evil. This is, if you will, this semi-eschatological life, this life between the times. While we have this opportunity, let us sow to the Spirit See, and do good to all. This is another reason why I think that this section is more than just financial issues, because here he's talking about doing good to all and bringing us back to the good that is brought about by the fruits of the Spirit and all of those fruits, you see, the fruits by which we are to love one another and loving one another, do good to all. We do good to all out of the abundance we have in Christ. Right? So do good to all. And to all men. But especially to those who believe. Now, it is interesting how he does use this language of good, and you can uh, take a look at that same hand that you were looking at before. And uh, you can see how... He has, earlier, up here in 6.6, 6, he has good things. Okay. One being taught, uh, give to the one teaching, good, all good things. And then at the end, he's got the same good word in chapter 6, verse 10. This is on the far right-hand side of your handout. And then at 6.9, he's actually got a different word for good in the middle there. But there is this language of good, And this is ultimately geared, I think, to the eschatological good. That is, you're doing good and love to all out of looking forward to that good which is ahead. The glory that's ahead. And he has this interesting statement. Do good to all men, especially to those who are the household of faith. Now, this this word... uh, especially here, could be particularly, and some think it means particularly. Do good to all men, I mean particularly, specifically to those who are of the household of faith, as if to exclude it to those who are of the household of faith. I don't think this is likely, I don't think it's right, because I think that the doing good to all men, you see, then goes back to the fruits of the Spirit. And as we saw, the fruits of the flesh our opposition, not simply to believers, but to unbelievers. If you're involved in sorcery, right? If you're involved in fornication, you are abusing even unbelievers. So I think he seems to be using it in the sense of especially. Then that would be doing good to all, but especially to those who are the household of faith. And he's got this language of one another here, which is a big emphasis. Now, I mentioned to you a work by Jonathan Edwards last week called The Nature of True Virtue. And he makes a classic distinction in there between what's called the love of benevolence and the love of complacence. And I think this is an explanation of how you can talk about loving all men, but having a special love For the saints Okay Because there's a love toward all men Which has been called the love of benevolence And here Edwards talks about it in terms of loving being And God being the greatest being And then loving those who are uh, his beings But I'm going to say Put it in terms of the language of the image of God You are to love those who have the image of God Right Right As James talks even about the unbeliever, who have the image of God, you curse men made in his image, as if, even after the fall, there's some aspect of the image of God that remains. Jonathan Edwards would call this the natural image of God, okay? As opposed to the moral image of God, which is totally lost in the fall, all right? But then you have those who believe, and they receive a love of complacence, Now, and I don't know, did I spell that right, Jim, at the end there? Okay, good. This is a love for someone else's virtue, okay? And I'm going to say a love for someone's union with Christ and then the virtue that flows out of that, okay? So the first love that you have for all men is irrespective of their virtue. Does the unbeliever have true virtue? No, true virtue comes only in union with Christ, right? So you love them for the image of God that remains in them, okay? And so you have a love for all men in general in that way. And Edwards will show how that, hey, if you're just loving your neighbor and and your children and so forth, you're loving those around you because you love those who love you, you don't have this love of benevolence. The unbeliever doesn't have this love of benevolence because they don't truly love all men, they love those who are of benefit to them. Okay, This is loving others based on a love for God, who is the greatest of beings. So you have to have a love of God to have a true love of benevolence. Well, then Edwards would say when you see this love of benevolence in someone else, you have a love of complacence for them. Okay? Now, what I've tried to suggest is a love of complacence is based on union with Christ, first of all, and then Conformity to Christ, the, what you could call degrees of conformity to Christ, because anybody that's in union with Christ has conformity to Christ. So this is a matter of degrees of conformity of Christ. And here, then, I think Paul is saying, you see, have he's got a focus on this. He's saying, do good, and this do good language is the language of love. You see, he's picking it up from earlier. Love is... Those in union with Christ, especially love them because of their union with Christ. As you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you love those in union with him, aren't you? You see Christ in them. And so, this is the beauty of, I think, of what Paul is doing, and he is putting this in, you see, this context of living out of the liberty that's in Christ, you possess Christ and the glories that above, right? And you got other brothers and sisters who are also united with Christ before the throne of God. If you love the Lord God and that glory that he's given you in heavenly places, are you not going to love those who are union there as well? And therefore, there will all be equality, you see, if you will, in the inheritance in Christ Jesus. And then you express that love to others. That is, in terms of benevolence toward them and hoping, you see, because of the time. You see, doing good to all because of the time, hoping for their eternal salvation as well. So I think Paul has put this all in light of his gospel which is completely in contrast with the Judaizers. And after we take the break, we'll see how Paul embodies this in his own life in contrast to the Judaizers. All of this is in contrast to the Judaizers, who genuinely hate all men. How do we know that? Does not all men in this book include Gentile and Jew? And, of course, they have not a love for God. The church, out of her union with Christ. Instead, they mostly love themselves and those who will benefit them, those who are under them. And so we have them sowing unto the flesh, leading unto corruption and eternal destruction, but the life that's in Christ Jesus leading unto eternal life. Now before we take our break, Jim Dennison has an announcement to make to you, so I'll let him come up and do that.
1: Um, I do think that uh, in the light of Paul's comments, we should thank our teacher for the good things he's been teaching us through this series. I'm delighted myself to have been able to sit and listen. Uh, We will come back on Thursday nights in two weeks, on the 14th of April, to look at the historical portions of the book of Daniel. So if you are interested in that wonderful book, but in particular those parts of the book that are dealing with with history, prophetic history. I'm not going to touch so much on the dispensational or millennial questions, though they will be, you know, indirectly related. <clears throat> but I've been asked to do this because of the 11th chapter. And if any of you have tried to work your way through Daniel chapter 11, you know it's a veritable haired mare's nest and extremely difficult to follow the thread. So I do promise you a way through the wilderness. Uh, we'll take our time going through that last chapter very deliberately, very slowly, with lots of maps and outlines and so on and so forth. But we'll set the context for that with uh, Daniel's 2nd uh, chapter and 7th chapter. Uh, before uh, that begins, and we'll go... Uh, in April and May, you know, until we finish the 11th chapter, you're welcome to do it. I'm gonna do it anyway because I've been asked to do it and get it on tape and so on. There are people that want it, so I'm going to do it, um, for their sake. But you're all welcome to come, so please come and, and invite anybody that's interested in Daniel, you know, even your Seventh-day Adventist friends. They're really interested in Daniel. <laughs> uh, but we also have a conference, uh, here a week from tomorrow. Uh, for the birthday of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. If you don't know anything about the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, shame on you. But at, at any rate, you're welcome to come and we'll teach you a little bit about the Orthodox Presbyterian Church because we're going to give a kind of birthday anniversary series of lectures talking about the OPC and particularly J. Gresham machin who was the founder of the denomination uh, and his heroic stand against liberalism in uh, Christianity in general. So there you, little brochures back there. You're welcome to pick them up and take them and give them to anybody that might be interested. So those things are in front of us, and so are refreshments.
0: Okay, we're going to try to get started here. <clears throat> now we're looking at verses 11 through 18. And Paul begins this section by saying see with what large writ- letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And uh most likely what he's doing is he, he's probably beginning to write with his own hand here for the end of this letter. And uh, notice he is beginning, you see, with I, see with large letters, I am writing to you with my own hand. Coming back to I, his, and he's going to be continuing this with a personal biography through the rest of this book. Um, and in conflict with the Judaizers. So I think what's happening is Paul's got his own narrative biography in Christ Jesus in contrast to the Judaizers and their own narrative in the flesh. In fact, this brings us back to the beginning of the book, doesn't it? Where Paul has a narrative biography. Okay, beginning in chapter 1 and going through chapter 2 in his conflict with the Judaizers in chapter 2, right? Well, notice that he says in verse 12, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. And I think what we're going to see in this whole section, in effect, is the conflict between flesh and spirit once again. That conflict of flesh versus spirit embodied in the Apostle Paul versus the Judaizers. So he is, Paul, if you will, is brought down into the life of Christ by being brought into the life of the Spirit above in contrast to the Judaizers who were living down in the flesh in this world, in this age. And the two contrasts will partially be set up, or mainly set up, in terms of boasting. Paul who boasts in the cross, the Judaizers who boast in the flesh. And of course, that does flow out of what we've seen already, doesn't it? Because haven't we been talking from 5.13 at least onward about the fruit of the Spirit being love, right? And love contrasted to 5.26 where you have not boasting. Okay, not boasting. And the boasting associated with the flesh, the boasting associated then with living a life the way the Judaizers want. Living a life where you're placing your glory in this world. Isn't that true? If your glory is in this world, and what you do, you're going to boast about it, aren't you? Whereas if your life is caught up in what Christ did, and accomplished, and you're in heaven, and you receive the fruits of that, what he did, where's your boast going to be? Christ and what he did, right? You're going to boast in the cross. And you're going to boast implicitly in the resurrection from the dead. And this is where Paul finds his life. He says, in effect, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, and I've written this out for you on your handout, you've got some sort of contrast going out with this term in verses 12 and 13, at least, those wanting, and then in 13, they want you to be circumcised, Okay. And then in both cases, in order that, verse 12, in order that they may not be persecuted, the they is implied, and, and then in order that they may boast in your flesh. So this whole section you see here is talking about the Judaizers. Okay? So we have Paul in sixteen eleven bringing the I right to you in my own hand. And then six twelve and thirteen, he's got the Judaizers, they, and then he's going to come back to I, verse 14, okay, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the conflict between the two, between him as the I and they as the Judaizers. And what you will see here is that Paul in this sense, is referring, first of all, to those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh. That's how he's describing them. You see, he's going to describe himself as I in Christ, right? So we're going to have a conflict between I in Christ and they who want to make a good showing in the flesh. Very interesting, this term, make a good showing in the flesh, because actually in the Greek, it kind of literally means to have a good face, And that not only reminds us that they want to have a visible appearance before men and please men, but that actually reminds us of the narrative earlier in the book. In fact, remember, if you go back to the narrative section, Paul is developing a contrast between not according to men, but according to Christ. Not according to men and their face, but according to Christ. Okay, So here, men and face go together, and here, according to Christ, Christ is the center here. In fact, let's take a look at that. Chapter 2, verse 6. Someone want to read that for us? And if you've got an NASB, read that, because it may not have the same thing. It's clearly in another version. Well, it doesn't have the same thing clearly even in the NASB, but um, at least you get some aspect of that.
1: But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Okay.
0: And... See, what it is, is God shows no partiality. God does not receive the face of men. God does not receive the face of man. And he has set up his language in one eleven by, I would have you to know, brother, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men, for neither I received it from man, but I was taught it by received it through a revelation of Christ. So there, it's not according to man, but according to Christ. You got that according to man, according to Christ. Okay. And that language, according to man, seems to be very similar to the language that we have in Galatians 2.11, where he actually says in the Greek, according to face. That is, I opposed Cephas according to face. Now, these were texts we looked at in the narrative, and what I suggested there was that this language of according to face and according to men go together. And it w- in effect, in this case, Paul opposing him to his face because Paul is not living according to face, you see. He's not living according to men, whereas the Judaizers are. Why? Because he tells us in his verse 10 of chapter 1 about his own narrative biography, for I am not seeking the favor of men, but of God, you see. For now am I, for am I seeking the favor of men uh, or of God. If I was striving to please men, I would not be a uh, uh if I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So again, so seeking the face of men is seeking to please men. And that's what the Judaizers are doing, living according to man whereas Paul is living according to Christ. And so, interestingly enough, when we have this other narrative biography, here at the end of this book, we have they who want to have a good face. They are described, again, in the same kind of way. And they want to compel you to be circumcised in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. We will look at that in a moment. Those who are circumcised do not keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised in order that they may boast in your flesh. So, clearly we've got a contrast going on here between they don't want to be persecuted, but they do want to boast in your flesh, right? So, to boast in your flesh, to magnify the glory of this world. They want to be top dogs in the world, manifest before men, glory in men. They do not want to live in the cross of Christ, which involves persecution, then, as Christ, in effect, was persecuted when he was executed, And they do not want to live in that life. Interestingly enough, he's going to then talk, why does he bring out circumcision? Why circumcision as to exalt in the flesh? Because is it not circumcision that's going to bring you back? to the older economy, now they want to go back to the older economy. And by going back to the older economy, they make it an end in itself, and they absolutize the world. They're wanting to go back to that age of circumcision, where there is a distinction between circumcision and uncircumcision. You'll notice when Paul talks about his own narrative in verse 14, that it's, basically, excuse me, in verse 15, for neither is circumcision or uncircumcision anything but a new creation. There was a time when there was a distinction between circumcision and uncircumcision, wasn't there? Back under the law. But now we've come to a new creation. So what the Judaizers are doing is they want to bring you back to the older administration. By implication, some of the glory of the world is still there. Yes, the glory of the world has been done away with, even as God delivered his people from the glories of Egypt and this world, eon. And yet, did not fully, as fully, uh, deliver them from the glories of the world as he now has in Christ. And so, if you go back to seek circumcision, you are seeking to make that part of the law, the insufficiency of the law. You're making that the goal rather than its sufficiency, which leads to Christ. And so, we have boasting in the world versus boasting in the cross. And that's it. They want to boast in your flesh. And I've suggested to you that even under the law, some degree of boasting was still allowed. They want to absolutely boast in your flesh, but they're doing it by going back to circumcision. and i've alluded to this passage before but i thought I'd, we'd turn to it this time romans 3:27 to 29 where boasting is not as fully excluded under the law someone want to read that for us Yeah, 327 to 329.
1: Where then is boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. For is he God, for is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also.
0: Okay. Now, I think it is true that the substance of this has always been true in Christ Jesus. But notice how it comes to its fullness in 29. Is he the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. When is this most fully manifest? Is it not in the present time? In the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? And thus, I'm suggesting that what Paul is saying here is most fully manifest In the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, where then is boasting, it's excluded, not as much by the law as now in Christ. Now that Christ has borne the curse of the law, there are none above another in terms of possessing a blessing versus a curse in the inheritance of God, as there was here, as a Jew, as a free man would be above the slave. But now all are equal in Christ Jesus, as he has borne the curse of the law, as he's been raised into the heavenly places. So if you want to go back to circumcision, what you're doing is, when you want to go back in the history of redemption, you love the insufficiency of the former era. Because if you loved, like David, the sufficiency of that era, that is, if you loved, like David, the degree to which that era anticipated the era of Christ, wouldn't you want that uh, the age of christ over above it when you had the fullness of what was found in the law and you had that fullness in jesus when you want the greater fullness yeah so if you go backward it's because i didn't even love the substance of the fullness that was there cuz i want to get away from it as much as possible i want to go backward i want the insufficiency part okay i want to really go back to the world per se And this is what the Judaizers want to do by seeking to compel you to be circumcised. It should have a good showing in the flesh. And it may be that they also could boast, perhaps in that context, maybe with their other Jews and say, hey, if these people become circumcised, they're like our Jewish proselytes. Anyways, he says of these people... We're going to come back to tw- verse 12, but he says of these people in verse sixteen, verse 13, they do not keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, they may boast in your flesh. They do not keep the law. Well, clearly, he's certainly referring to the people who are obligated to keep the whole law, Galatians 5.3, and they don't do it. But is there a possibility that he's alluding, at least partially, to the insufficiency of Peter in Galatians 2.14, where, if in fact, you see, Paul says of Peter that if you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? That is, Peter did not live fully under the law, he lived like a Gentile. He did not keep the law, but indirectly was seeking, indirectly, to compel the Gentiles to live like Jews. So another indication there may be some connected back to the narrative. But here now, most pronouncedly, against these Judaizers, right, who are entrenched in this position. Unlike Peter, who we find writes his glorious epistles, First and Second Peter. Well, coming back to 12, notice that central to this is they don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They do not want to be persecuted for the cross. Okay, well, take a look at the handout here that I gave you again. This is the third page. And uh, the patterns aren't as clear to me here, but if you look at those who are circumcised, we're talking about circumcised, 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 and on either side of that we have flesh. Okay, We have flesh. Right after that first circumcised, we have the cross not persecuted. Well, Here, you see, do we even perhaps have an allusion to Christ being crucified in the flesh? But that we will get to clearly in verse 14. Here, we have them unwilling to be persecuted persecuted to the cross of Christ. And if this is a narrative contrast between Paul and the Judaizers, where do we find that contrast? We do find that contrast, don't we? On persecution. Doesn't he say something in Galatians 5.10? What's he say there? Oh, excuse me, 5.11. 5.11. What's he say in 5.11? Can
1: we read that? But i brethren, rather, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? And the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished.
0: Yeah. If I preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? I am persecuted. If I preached circumcision, I wouldn't be persecuted. Now, certainly this may have something to do with that period in which you've got the Jews, right, the Jewish authorities persecuting the apostles for preaching the cross of Christ and therefore saying Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. They've been circumcised in Christ Jesus. So there is that contrast between either the cross and the circumcision of Christ or the circumcision of the Gentiles is required. Look again in our context for persecution implicitly in 6.17. What does he say there? Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Now, this is not the stigmata that some of the medieval Roman Catholics suddenly think they get these scars of Jesus on their body as they're entrenched in some sort of trance. No. Okay? These are probably the marks of his persecution. Right? And... So he bears in his body the marks of persecution. He bears on his body the marks of Christ. The marks of Christ. As if Christ was also persecuted. You see. Remember what he says to Paul in the Damascus road why do you persecute me when you persecute Christians, you are persecuting me? Not the, you know, ultimately leading back to then wishing to attack the one who was crucified before, connecting it ultimately with his own crucifixion. So, here, this is where they do not want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ, which means it is the cross of Christ, you see, that has made the difference between circumcision and uncircumcision, has eliminated that boast, and has brought the kingdom of heaven. And thus is Paul, by contrast to the Judaizers, humbling himself in Christ Jesus here. The Judaizers don't want to humble themselves in Christ, they want to boast. Therefore they are not living out of the Spirit, are they? In this context. And, in effect, as we've seen, they are not sowing to the Spirit, they are sowing to the flesh. By implication, is Paul doing the opposite? Is Paul sowing in his ministry, sowing to the Spirit? Is he even sowing to the Spirit by writing to the Galatians? Well, in effect, we have a conflict, I think, a conflict between the Spirit and the flesh embodied in the conflict between Paul and the Judaizers. Because we see already this side of the coin, the Judaizers representing the flesh and boasting, right? They represent what it means to be under the flesh, which in in the previous section was boasting, 526. And so Paul is going to embody the life of the Spirit through union with the cross of Christ. So we're going to have that conflict that we've already seen in broad terms represented in the life of Paul himself versus the Judaizers. In effect, we're going to find the conflict between the world and the cross of Christ embodied in this conflict. And that's why he says in the next section, may it be that I should never boast in verse 14, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes.
1: Is there any possibility that these Judaizers are trying to get the Gentiles circumcised because they want to avoid attracting attention, uh, persecution of attention by persecution to the church itself uh, as a result of these people uh, not being circumcised and therefore under law of Rome, mainly Judaism, was a legal religion. So they're exposing the community by not being circumcised to the persecution of the culture. Yeah, in fact, that discussion,
0: the debate has gone on in New Testament scholarship, whether that's connected here to Galatians. Um, and uh, there was actually a scholar named Robert Jewett who tried to argue that there was some even connection perhaps to the Jewish things that were going on in Jerusalem, you know, Judaism at the time. Um, and then, of course, these churches aren't far from that. Um, and that, uh, of course, as you know, Christianity doesn't, the, the deal is, Christianity doesn't become a, a, a religion like Judaism, which was especially given privilege by the Romans. The Romans allowed Judaism to be its own separate religion and go its own way, and not have, the people didn't have to engage in the, in the cult. I think this is part of what you're getting at, right? And uh, so what happens is, if you come along these Christians, they aren't really Jews because they don't circumcise their converts, and yet these people want to escape from the, the Roman cult, okay? And would they then be under persecution uh, by, you know, by the Romans. Um, now, I mean, there's one scholar, you you know, J.D. Dunn, you know, of course, he's a new perspective on Paul guy. He, he doesn't think there's much credence to this because, uh, essentially he doesn't see that the Roman emperors at that time were actually engaged in this kind of persecution, um, of Christians. Um, Though others you see as i 've said think that there is some connection here, and uh, they they see that as connected to exactly the, the laws that we 've talked about and I thought that was feasible myself years ago when I wrote a paper on this before I even read the, the, this, the this literature on this um, but uh, i'm not i 'm not as sure but but it sounds plausible. Um, the, um, I think that this statement that we're going to come across here is very interesting in verse 14. May it be that I should never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything or uncircumcision but a new creation. Now, let's start with some basics here. We can see that Paul is going to make his boast only in the Lord, right? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And it is clear that there's a cleavage that takes place between Paul and the world in the cross of Christ. The cross involves a cleavage between the world and Paul, right? Right. And, in effect this also means that the law is, and the period of the law is somewhat associated with the world. Because, you see, he goes on from to saying, the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Certainly he means the world in big capital letters here, right? The world was crucified to me and I to the world. But then how he goes on for this verse 15... For neither is circumcision anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. For neither circumcision or uncircumcision is anything. When was circumcision or uncircumcision something? Again, under the period of the law, right? Circumcision is something. And so he's using this to explicate that contrast between contrast to the world as if he is associating the Jewish theocracy, in some sense, with the world. Now, you know I've written up my circle here, with two circles, and so we'll put it like this, that, if you will, the world is represented in the elementary principles of the world. Do you remember back in chapter 4, verse 3? He associated the law with the elementary principles of the world. And then what he's going to do in chapter 4, a few verses later, is he's going to associate the pagan world with the elementary principles of the world. So he's got elementary principles of the world in big letters and elementary principles of the world in small letters here, as if there's an association. As if, once again, if you want to go back... To the insufficiency of the older era, you're going back to it insofar as it embodied the elementary principles of the world. Manifested even in the Jewish blessings of the land, which in themselves, of the Spirit, were gifts of the Spirit anticipating the age to come, but insofar as they hadn't brought the fullness of the life of the Spirit, insofar as they were still pictured in earthly types and shadows, may be called the elementary principles of this world and look ultimately to the world per se. So, neither, you see, he's arguing this, I've been crucified to the world, neither circumcision or uncircumcision is anything, which associates that period with the world, but a new creation. Not the world, but a new creation. This is his eschatology. Isn't the future eschaton the new creation? Right? Isn't that right? So if he's brought that into the midst of history now, hasn't he brought the future into the midst of history now? Yes. When did this eschatological drama come to its climax? In the cross. and the resurrection. He brought the age to come. Semi-realized. Now. And so, here, the Judaizers who want to bring you back to being circumcised, what are they trying to do? They are trying to get you to worship the world. They want to show face before men, to please men, make a show of the world, you see. Paul has died to that. As he's actually died to the world in the cross of Christ... He can't make a boast in himself, can he? This has made him die. It's a work of grace, not of works, that has made him die to the world. So is it anything in his own merits? No. It's all by the grace of God, isn't it? He can't boast in himself. It's totally what Christ did. So he's going to boast where? In the cross. And it's that cross that caused him to die to the world, caused him to die to the former era in the history of redemption, that he may receive the new creation in the fullness with which it's come in Christ. Now, think about what must be behind this. Christ. If Paul died to the world, did not Christ die to the world when he was crucified? Yes. Christ was crucified to the world and the world to him on the cross. That's why Paul can be crucified to the world and the world to him in Christ. Right? So, what does this mean? Well, certainly, legally, Christ took upon himself the guilt and condemnation of the world, did he not? So in that sense, the world was crucified to him when he was crucified and raised from the dead. But How strongly should we take this language? The world was crucified. Certainly, there's a cleavage between the world and Christ in the crucifixion, in that he has died to the old order, and been raised into the heavenly places in the new creation. But the world was crucified? The cosmos was crucified on the cross? Is that what he's saying? The cosmos, this present eon, was crucified in the cross? That he might bring the age to come? I think so. But how can he mean that? How can he mean that? Because the world still continues on, and there are worldlings still in the world, right? So how can the whole world be crucified to Christ? How can the world be crucified on the cross? Well, if this is what he has in mind, perhaps he means it similarly to the way he says that the old man was crucified. The old man was crucified on the cross in Colossians. The old man was crucified. Now the old man referring back also to Adam. The old age in him, crucified on the cross. But does this mean that every single individual under the first Adam was crucified on the cross so that they will receive salvation? No. But it does mean that the old man in terms of his dominion is done away with. And for the elect chosen of God, it means that their their union to the old man has been destroyed, right? And that the old man is destroyed on the cross. And it even means, therefore, that the power of the old age has been destroyed. Principalities and powers, he's triumphed over them in the cross. So that this world is passing away. And he has brought the age to come. He has brought the new man in Christ Jesus. So, Paul may seem to mean here that in fact the world was crucified on Christ. And in that sense, he bore the wrath of the world upon himself, of the present eon, all coming down upon Christ. So that for you, as the elect, There is a cleavage between you and this present eon. You have been saved into that salvation of the new age. And, if you will, the world has died to him for it has been crucified. The ultimate power of this eon has been destroyed, and it is leading to what in this book? Corruption, right? Is that partially due to the death and resurrection of Christ? Well, certainly we have something cosmic going on here. And Paul, in effect, says that he will not boast in the world. You can't boast in the world if the world has been crucified, can you? It is dead. And in its place has come the new creation. This is why you can't boast in the world and live your life as if the world were the end and goal of life. It is not. And it is very interesting that when you look at the patterns that Paul has here that I've given you in this outline... You will notice that he has the language of bearing and boast. Okay. That is repeated. If you go on the third page, and I don't have the handout directly in front of me, but if you go on the third page, you will find that I've begun at the beginning of the verbs that have you've got boasting and bearing. And that follows off what's on the first page where you also have that boast and bearing language. Has even the boast of the world been born in the cross of Christ? Well, in verse 15, we've seen there's neither circumcision as anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Those who walk by this rule, the new creation... Remember how we saw in chapter 5 that you were to walk by the Spirit, right? The Spirit now associated with the new creation, right? Because you're to walk by the new creation as a rule. Versus what? What do the Judaizers want you to do? What do they want your rule to be? Circumcision, right? They want you to go back to circumcision as if your rule should be to go back to the law in its older administration with the distinctions between circumcision and uncircumcision. As if they want you to go back to the bondage that we've seen that is under the law to revoke the liberty that's in Christ Jesus. Christian Reconstructionism ultimately is going back to this bondage. As it goes back to follow the judicial laws of the Old Testament, as some of them even try to follow the food laws of the Old Testament. Paul has a new, the rule of the new creation, which is the organic fullness of the law, which is the law come to its fullness in Christ Jesus. They're the moral law now more fully organically united to the fullness of the coming of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how he says, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Peace. He brings us back to chapter one again because he began that letter with peace. And is not peace one of the fruits of the spirit? Yes, this peace that arises from the new creation, you see. Those who follow this rule, is there not going to be peace upon them who live out of the Spirit? Because that's a gift of the new creation. Again, following this rule is based on grace, is it not? And the peace that has come in Jesus. And therefore, he pronounces a blessing of peace upon them, which ultimately leads to eternal peace, as if they will be rewarded with eternal life the fruits of sowing to the Spirit. Then, upon all who walk by this rule, it is interesting that this seems to be a conditional uh, type of blessing in the sense that he is talking to those who walk by this rule. But if you turn, if you go back and follow the Judaizers, there will not be peace and mercy upon you. Because where is peace and mercy found? only in the mercy of the fullness of the times and the peace that has been rewarded by in Christ and through the Spirit. And it may be that this peace here then is in contrast to the curses that he places on the Judaizers in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where he twice curses them. Well... What about this phrase, the Israel of God? If you have your handout, you will notice in the third page that I have put it underneath the household of God in in chapter 6, verse 10. You'd have to kind of go up a bit few pages to see that, but what I'm suggesting to you is the first section, chapter 6, verses 1 to 10, ended with the household of faith. And this section, because there is kind of an end of the section before the last two verses, 17 and 18, ends with upon the Israel of God. So I'm suggesting to you that the Israel of God is parallel to the household of faith. Therefore, is this talking about the Jews? Is he suddenly reverting to the Jews when talking about the Israel of God, as most dispensationalists think? No. It is parallel to the household of faith. The household of faith being that final household of the end of the ages. He's talked about one another, now a household in the Spirit. The household of faith. He's talked about this book about faith being that which is preeminent, right? Trusting in what Christ has done. And we live by faith, now that faith has come, that Christ, the seed, has come, you see. And so that's the household of faith, which are of Jew and Gentile alike. And so when he talks about Israel of God, he's not forgetting what he said about all in Christ being sons of Abraham, is he? This must include Gentile and Jew alike, And when he has earlier, he talks about something of God. He talks about the church of God, which he used to persecute. Israel of God is a unique phrase in Paul here in Galatians. It's not referring to Israel according to the flesh. It is the people of God. Peace and mercy be upon them who follow this rule, even upon the Israel of God. And now... He ends with verses 17 and 18. Let no one cause me trouble. Let no one cause me trouble. In fact, why don't you receive me by implication as you received me before, as you received me as Christ Jesus at first, Galatians 4.14? Cause me not trouble in this again. Perhaps now do not cause me trouble in rejecting the gospel. Come to this glorious faith. For I bear in my body the brand marks of Christ. And these marks, we've mentioned something about them, but they may be a reference sometimes thought to be the marks of a slave. Some have said that they are like the marks of God, like those in Revelation 7, 2 to 4, where the mark of God is written on their foreheads. And, you know, even these two ideas don't have to be different from one another because there it's the servants of God that are marked with a mark of God himself. But here, marks that come from his persecution. And therefore, he embodies, you see, he's saying at the end of this epistle, I embody the life of the epistle that I have been writing to you. Therefore, I am living out of the grace of God. I am living out of the liberty that is in Jesus Christ. Out of his death and resurrection. I am living out of the new age. And out of that new age and the great glory that's come above, I can endure persecution. And be denied the things of this world. Because I'm in union with him who was persecuted and ultimately crucified to the world. And that has brought the great grace. I've embodied this life and out of that life I give you grace. The grace of this epistle. The grace of the new age. He constantly talks about grace earlier in this book as that grace, the fullness of grace that has come in Christ Jesus, right? That grace in Him. And be upon your spirit. Now here, seemingly, perhaps the human spirit, but even maybe a reminder of the Holy Spirit. Brethren, Amen. Brethren. Besides, Ephesians is the only book where he ends it with a brethren. Does he want to lighten the tone that he has given at the beginning with brethren? And do what we've seen brethren doing throughout, which is to unite Gentile as equal brethren with Jew in Christ Jesus? Yes. And this blessing comes to you. This blessing comes to you who are in Christ Jesus. You who have heard the word of God from the apostle Paul. You have heard the message of the end of the ages. You have heard from the beginning of chapter one that by the cross and death and resurrection of Christ, you have been delivered from this wicked evil age. By the will of your father. By the father who has loved you and in the fullness of the times given you his son. That he has brought eternity into history. "...in the life of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore in his death has been able to take upon the curse of the world as God of gods, light of lights, taking upon eternal wrath, the wrath that abides upon this world, and brought the new age in Jesus Christ. The fullness of his love, with which he's loved you and given himself up for you, now manifest in its fullness... In the resurrection, given to you the peace and joy in life, that you may have the sufficiency of Christ in all things, that you may have this grace of which He talks about in all things, in the midst of even your union with Christ in His sufferings in this world, that you may give of yourself out of love to Christ and out of love to the brothers because you regard them as brothers in Christ Jesus, as equal participants. And so you live in the Lord Jesus Christ who does the same. Any questions? David. Uh,
1: Verse 11. Mm -hmm. See with what large letters I've written to you. My own hand. Is there any discussion in the literature as to whether the Apostle Paul ever used the amanuensis?
0: Yes, there is, and uh, it is true that he uses this amanuensis a number of places, you know, uh, and uh, I haven't written them down, but uh, you'll find them in some of his other letters, or at least one or two, where he's written in his own hand, Okay. But this is the only place, apparently, where he says uh, to what large letters I write to you. And so some people have wondered why he adds that part here. Um, some theories is that there is an emphasis like italicizing something in a letter. Um, but uh, And some try to make some claims related to his, you know, either poor eyesight or bad hand or what have you. Um, and I don't have any answers to those questions, but... Um, but I do note that he brings in his biography that. Okay, well thank you very much for being here. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Very much.